invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. Now Luke chapter 1, you might want to put a pen or a bulletin or something in there. We're not going to get there for a while. We're going to spend most of this morning in 1 Samuel 1, but conclude in Luke chapter 1. Uh, We just sang a a pretty catchy song, didn't we? Um, Has a nice melody. It gets the hairs on the back of our necks to stand up, and uh, we can get all jumpy and excited. Um, Did you actually hear what we were saying? Uh, That song expresses uh, one of the most difficult realities, one of the most difficult concepts, one of the most difficult experiences Uh, in the Christian journey. On the one hand, blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. So life is good. Dreams are coming true. Everything's great. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. And the next stanza says what? Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. In other words, nothing's going right. My dreams are crushed. The walls are caving in. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. Blessed be your name. And then he jumps back again, the author of that song. Blessed be your name. When the sun's shining down on me, when the world is all as it should be, from my perspective anyway, blessed be your name. That's easy. Now the difficult part. Blessed be your name. On the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. And then that little stanza at the end, you give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. There are echoes. If you listen carefully, uh, there are echoes from the book of Job. Do you remember Job? Uh, He is a difficult man to empathize with, isn't he? From one day to the next. So imagine this, Sunday... You wake up tomorrow morning. One day to the next, uh, Job's possessions, everything he owns is gone. No insurance policy. It's just gone. Home is gone. Mode of transportation is gone. Bank account is gone. Insurance policies are gone. Zero. He has nothing. Nothing. From one day to the next, is it six children? Three sons, three daughters. Gone in a moment. And from one day to the next, his health. Imagine him, ravished, racked with pain on his bed as his health is taken from him. In that state, all is gone. The Lord has taken away. In that state, in that condition, his wife comes to him, curse God and die. What else, man, have you got to live for? God has clearly forsaken you. 
Possessions are gone. Family is gone. Your health is gone. Curse God and die. There is absolutely no reason under heaven for continuing on. To which Job replies, his words are wonderful. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. We often forget that little line in there, but it's there. I'm not making that up. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Now there's a phrase at the end of that verse in Job 1 that whoever wrote the book of Job added. They aren't Job's words, but the author's commentary on Job's words. They are these. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He did not sin with his lips. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart in both realities, prosperity and adversity, blessing and cursing, giving and taking, my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Now, the reformer John Calvin, I promise to never do this, but the the reformer John Calvin preached 159 sermons consecutively to his church in Geneva on the book of Job in about a year. And these weren't sermonettes, folks. These were an hour, two hours in length. 159 sermons on the book of Job. Why? Because he figured it would take 159 sermons for his people to learn that one simple truth. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? It is one of the most difficult truths to grasp and accept. It is one of the most difficult things to celebrate. It is one of the most difficult experiences to pass through. And yet Scripture teaches us repeatedly, does it not, that God gives, God blesses, and God takes away. And in the midst of both, we are to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. How's that possible? We're going to answer that question by returning to 1 Samuel. Because Hannah teaches us a most important, invaluable lesson when it comes to living under the providence of God. Bad providences, good providences, Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm going to invite you to follow along as I begin reading in chapter 1, verse 24. I'm going to go all the way through to the end of chapter 2. No, not all the way through. All the way through to the end of Hannah's song in chapter 2. That's verse 10. So chapter 1, verse 24, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 10. And when she had weaned him, that's Samuel, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. 
There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Now, we're primarily concerned with what we've just read in chapter 2, Hannah's prayer of praise. But we have a little unfinished business at the end of chapter 1. So let's begin there by way of review. Elkanah and Hannah are married. They can't have children. The Lord has closed uh, her womb. On one of their annual visits to Shiloh, where the tabernacle of the Lord stands, uh, they go up there to celebrate the annual Feast of Jehovah. On one of those visits, uh, Hannah pours out her soul before God. From her despondency and despair, she prays. She prays for a son. Eli, the priest, a judge in Israel, uh, sees Hannah. Her lips aren't moving. He assumes she is drunk. Put away your drink. He says to her woman, put away your drink. If only he had said that to his own sons. But we'll get there next week. If only Eli had taken such a stand with his own kin, how different his own history and heritage might have been. He tells Hannah to put away her drink. She defends herself, explains that she isn't drunk, but she's praying out of the despair, the anguish of her soul, praying for a son. She makes a vow, a Nazarite vow, that she will devote that son to the service of the Lord. Returns home. Elkanah and Hannah conceive. She bears a child, names him Samuel. The time comes for his weaning. Minimum three years of age in Israel in that day. He's likely four or five years old. And so we had uh, little Max. Max Greeny was up here earlier. I think Max is five, five years of age. So you picture Max, someone of that size, that stature, that development. That's Samuel. As Hannah now makes the journey, 15, 20-mile journey from Ramah, where she lives, to Shiloh to hand over her son to Eli. Here's a question. What's the woman thinking? I often try to get into the the minds of Bible characters, rightly or wrongly, try to get in there. What, What is she thinking? What is going through her mind? As she makes that journey by foot, knowing that she is going there to hand over her son. Why did I make this ridiculous vow? Why did I ever do this? How can I get out of it? What's the worst thing God could do to me if I were to break my vow? 
Will that old man, Eli, really be able to look after my precious son? What kind of influence will Eli's sons, wretched men, have on my precious boy? What will this do to Samuel's development, his self-esteem and his self-confidence? What if Eli and I were to work out some sort of time-sharing arrangement? What if Elkanah and I were to move to Shiloh? We don't get a hint of any of that, do we? What do we see? We see a woman who prayed for a son in accordance with the glory of God. We see a woman who made a vow in accordance with the glory of God. We see a woman who knows that God heard her prayer, who knows God responded to her request, who knows God has set apart this child for something great in Israel. And Hannah, therefore, trusts God. And Hannah is able to let go, let go. Now, there is an invaluable lesson there when it comes to parenting. That's not particularly the road I want to go down. There is an invaluable lesson there when it comes to life, when it comes to life. Are there any control freaks out there? You know who you are. Oh, a few hands went up in the back. That's good. If they'd been sitting in the front, I don't think they would have been putting their hands up. Safe back there. I I should actually name them right now for doing that. Any control freaks out there? Uh, you, You must manage. You must Resolve. You must control. After all, no one can do it quite like you can do it. And you're not even convinced God can do it. If we're control freaks, how we must learn to let go and let God. Are there any worry warts out there? The gloves are off. We're only 10 minutes in. The gloves are off. Any worry warts? What, What if that were to happen? What if that doesn't happen? And if that were to happen, what then might happen? And if that weren't to happen, then what might be the result? And you live in the world of the hypothetical. And you have a thousand and one possible scenarios. And you'd have more if you could cram them into your mind. But just scenarios upon scenarios of things that might happen, could happen, might not happen, could not happen. And you live in this world of anxiety, consumed. Oh, you must learn to let go. Are there any scaredy cats out there? Uh, Some fears are rational. Most of our fears are irrational. Products of the mind, overactive imagination. Afraid of our own shadow. Afraid of everything that was bumping the night. Fears that, that, that grip us to such an extent that they are debilitating. Robbing us of joy and peace and comfort in the Holy Spirit. If that's you, you must learn to let go. Uh, Those three situations I just described, I put them in rather comical terms, but there is actually a name for each of those three things. You know what it is? Three little three-letter word, sin. Or a four-letter word, idol. That's what these things are. Why? How can I say that? We succumb to being a control freak. We succumb to being a worry wart. We succumb to being a scaredy cat. When we fail to do what? Trust God. See, Hannah knows God. Hannah knows the Lord of hosts. Hannah knows that the Lord has heard her prayer. 
The Lord has answered her prayer. The Lord has given her Samuel. The Lord has appointed Samuel for something great in Israel. Trusting her God, she is able to do what? To let go. And having brought her son, weaned, to Shiloh, she offers the appropriate corresponding sacrifice. It's recorded there in verse 24, verse 25. And then she reminds Eli, verse 26, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, right? Years have passed, praying to the Lord, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him, given him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Now, having directed those words to Eli, and we move into chapter 2, Hannah prays. This is her second prayer. Back in chapter 1 is her first prayer. It is a prayer of petition. She makes a request. This is a prayer of praise. And she begins. And this this statement with which she begins is, is pivotal. Pivotal, this little hymn of prayer, this psalm is really what it is. This psalm hangs on this first phrase. My heart exalts in the Lord. Now, why do I say the entire psalm hangs on this phrase? Why do I say that that phrase is pivotal? For the following reason, it teaches us something of extreme importance. It is this. Hannah does not exult in. Hannah does not delight in God's gift. She does not say, my heart exults in what the Lord has given me. She does not say, my heart exults in the Lord because he has blessed me with a son. She does not say, my heart exults in the Lord because he has bestowed a wonderful gift upon me. What does she say? My heart exults in the Lord. In other words, the object of her delight is whom? It is God, not God's gift. Now here, this next, this next concept is of extreme importance. I dare say, Hannah prayed this prayer, uttered these words, lived like this, before the Lord gave her Samuel. Before the Lord ever answered that prayer. Before the Lord ever gave her that tremendous gift, before the Lord ever took away her scorn and her repute, before the Lord ever ever blessed himself by bestowing such a wonderful gift for which she had longed and yearned and prayed earnestly, Hannah would have said, my heart exalts in the Lord. Now you think back to that song with which we opened. Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me. When the world is all as it should be, blessed be your name. It is easy to exult in the Lord when the sun is shining down on us. What's the next stanza? Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. You see, either way, Hannah knows her God. And Hannah exalts, delights in her God. Why? She gives us three reasons. First is this. It's found in verses 2 and 3. Hannah delights in God because of who he is. Because of who he is. And in verses 2 and 3, she declares five 
beautiful truths concerning God. Uh, the first is this. She, she, she declares that she delights in God. Her heart exalts in the Lord. Why? Because of his incomparable holiness. The very first statement in verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord. When we speak of God's holiness, or rather when we read of God's holiness in the Bible, there, there are one of two things in view. At times when we read of God's holiness, what is in view is his moral purity, his blamelessness, his, his moral perfection. And so we, we hear, God is holy. That means he is pure. And so we're exhorted in Scripture to be holy as God is holy. We are to be morally pure as God is morally pure. But more often than not in the Old Testament, when we read of God's holiness, it is not his blamelessness that's in view. It is his incomparableness. God is holy, meaning he is without equal. He is incomparable. He is unfathomable. There is no one like him in heaven above or on earth below. When it comes to God, his, his holiness is incomparable. We are like, I really enjoy the, the, the seashore, being on the beach and peering out at the ocean. We are like children on the beach gazing out to the ocean when it comes to God. And there we stand with a little spade and, and, and bucket or a little uh, uh, shovel and bucket. And there we are on the, our feet firmly rooted on the sand and we look out at, the, at this expanse of the ocean and we take our bucket, our pail, and we dip it into the ocean. That's our approach to God. He is incomparably Holy, unfathomable, immeasurable. That is the God in whom her heart exalts. But she says, secondly, that she delights in God because of his unmatched greatness. Look at the second phrase in verse 2. There is none besides you. In other words, you alone are great. Whenever I think of God's greatness, I am immediately drawn to the heavens above. Something I've often wondered, and I was just talking with Allison about this the other night, I've often wondered, why why did God make the universe so big? You ever wondered about that? Why bother? We're never going to, no one's ever going to get there. No one's ever going to see 90% of what's out there. So why make it so big? Why make it so expansive? There's only one reason, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. I remember years ago, uh, someone informing me, I take his word for it, a very knowledgeable fellow, that uh, if our sun were the size of a pea, so if our sun were the size of a pea, we were traveling at the speed of light. Speed of light, the time it took me to snap my fingers, light circles the earth seven times. Traveling at that speed, if our sun were the size of a pea, 10 billion years to reach the edge of the universe. Traveling at a normal speed, a jet liner, what's that, 600 miles an hour? Our sun isn't the size of a pea. What kind of number are we talking about? Isaiah declares that the Lord measures the stars, the heavens, with the span of his hand. You know what the span of his hand is? It's that. That's hang loose years ago. I don't know if that's not hook him, is it? No, it's hang. I don't know what that means. But that's the span of the hand from the thumb to the little finger. The Lord measures the heavens, the universe, with the span of his hand. Unmatched greatness. Thirdly, Hannah delights in God. Why? Because of his unrivaled power. The third stanza in verse 2. It's the last one. 
There is no rock like our God. The rock speaks of immovability. The rock speaks of strength. The rock speaks of power. Psalm 104, we sing this in one of our songs. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. Did you hear hear what the psalmist is saying there? He looks on the earth and it trembles. In other words, a mere glance from God produces what? Earthquakes. He touches. A mere touch from God produces what? Volcanoes. Mere impulses from God. A simple glance, a simple touch, and such power. Friend, can you imagine what the full release of his power is able to do? That is the God in whom Hannah exalts. The God of unrivaled power. Fourthly, she exalts in God because he is a God of unsearchable knowledge. That brings us into verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. Again, the psalmist declares, He, God, determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Astronomers tell us that there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on all the beaches on the face of the earth. And the Lord counts them. He not merely counts them, he names each one. His knowledge is vast. His knowledge is unfathomable. It is unsearchable. Fifthly, Anna delights in God because of his unquestionable justice. Right at the end of verse 3, for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. And so this struggle between good and evil, this widespread prevalence of injustice as we see it in the earth today, it will not go on unchecked. There is a day coming. There is a day of justice. There is a day of judgment coming. When God will judge in accordance with unsearchable knowledge, in accordance with unrivaled power, and justice will be done in all the earth. And so as Hannah contemplates her God, she can declare, before God, before men, my heart exalts in the Lord. Not because of what he has given me, but because of who he is. And secondly, we see that Hannah delights in God not only because of who he is, but because of what he does. And this comes out in verses 4 through 8. And there are a number of couplets in these verses. First of all, in verse 4, we discover that God weakens and strengthens. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. And then the second couplet in verse 5, God empties and fills. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. That's the third couplet. He closes and opens the womb. And then the fourth couplet takes us into verse 6. He takes and gives life. 
The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. And in the fifth, in verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. And the eighth, he brings, the seventh, he brings low and he exalts. And so he brings low the mighty, he exalts the downcast. How is God able to do all of this? By what right does God do all of this? We find the answer right at the end of verse 8. Hannah gives it to us. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. And so it is the Lord who weakens and strengthens. It is the Lord who empties and fills. It is the Lord who closes and opens the womb. It is the Lord who takes and gives life. It is the Lord who impoverishes and enriches. It is the Lord who humbles and exalts. Going back to the song with which we began, it is the Lord who gives and takes away. Why? Because the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. So here we have a wonderful reminder, a wonderful celebration of God's matchless sovereignty. A wonderful reminder of this blessed truth that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Counsel of his will. Uh, a terrible phrase. I don't say that lightly. I say it seriously. A terrible phrase I have heard uttered on occasion over the years. And one occasion in particular that comes back rather vividly uh, is this. God had nothing to do with that. You ever heard that, that phrase? God had nothing to do with that. Remember years ago, very sad occasion, a friend of mine, her, uh, her brother, early 20s, uh, killed in a tragic fashion. And uh, it was a day of the funeral, and uh, hundreds gathered for this funeral. And the minister proceeded to assure everyone that this young man was in heaven. And um, I don't know what kind of gospel that was based on. And then assure everyone, dogmatically, God had nothing to do with this. Nothing to do with this. Here, here is what we must grasp, and here is where, where we wrestle. Um, we know the answer to the question, who? It is God. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. We do not always know the answer to the question, why? As a matter of fact, we rarely know the answer to the question, why? But the question, who, is not up for debate. I mean, friends, there are only three options. Uh, actually, not even, there's only really only one option. There are three schools of thought. Only one of them is an option. Uh, the first school of thought is this. The universe is governed by chance, right? That's the kind of world we live in, Chance. That uh, no one's in control, no one's calling the shots, everything is haphazard. Just keep your head down and hope nothing bad happens to you. It's all just chance, it's all just luck, it's a roll of the dice. That's one school of thought. I don't know how people live in that school of thought. The second school of thought is this. It's not really an option, but it's out there. Uh, The world is governed by God, who is actually less than God. That's a popular school of thought. Did you you get that? It's a little bit of a twist, brain twister. The universe, the world, is governed by God, who is actually less than God. In other words, he's the king, 
But there are things that happen that he never saw coming. Or there are things that happen that are beyond his control. Or there are rival forces and beings out there that sometime get the upper hand, catch God by surprise, and somehow do things that God never wanted or intended to happen. And then there's a third school of thought, which really is the only option. The universe is governed by God, whose will is perfect, whose power is matchless, whose knowledge is unsearchable, and whose sovereignty extends to all things. You see, when we go through the dark places, maybe there's some here to this day who are in a dark place. When we find ourselves in the dark places, Dark places in terms of marriage. Dark places in terms of family. Dark places in terms of uh, employment. In terms of health, mental and physical. A loss of loved ones and friends. When we find ourselves in, in dark places, there are certain truths that we can, we can never compromise, we can never let go of if we are to exult in the Lord, if we are to really be able to sing, blessed be the name of the Lord. Again, the truths are this, who? And the answer is always God. Why? We don't always know. But we rest in God's sovereignty. We rest in God's incomprehensibility. And so even Hannah, as she now exalts in the Lord, she is able to exalt in a God who brings low and brings high, a God who makes barren and who makes fertile, a God who who blesses and a God who curses, a God who kills and a God who gives life, a God who is control of all things, governing all things. She is able to exalt in Him even when things are not good, even when she is in a dark place. Why? Because she has learned to live under the providence of God with these two great unshakable realities. Who is in control? A sovereign God. Why? We don't always know. But we rest in God's incomprehensibility. And we rest in this assurance that he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. There's a wonderful little poem, Mabel Dennison, the stanza of which says the following, Of all God's marvels transcendent, this wonder of wonders I see, that the God of such infinite greatness should care for the sparrows in me. The God of such infinite greatness should care for the sparrows in me. And so Hannah is able to exult in God because of who he is. Hannah is able to delight delight in God because of what he does. And now thirdly, and this brings us into verses 9 and 10, Hannah delights in God because of what he will do. Three things emerge in verses 9 and 10. The first is this. All members of God's kingdom will be protected, saved. That's verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. Second thing he will do, all enemies of his kingdom will be destroyed, middle of verse 9. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. 
And the third thing he will do, his kingdom will extend to all nations. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And so all members of God's kingdom will be saved. All enemies of God's kingdom will be destroyed. And his kingdom will encompass the nations. Now notice what Hannah says, most interesting, at the very end of verse 10. And with this she concludes her psalm. He, that is the Lord, will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Let me read that again. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power, exalt the power of his anointed. One more time, because you're probably still not getting it. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Why am I stressing this? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Who is Hannah talking about? She has entered the realm of the prophetess, hasn't she? And she is speaking of God's king, a coming figure, his anointed. First time in scripture that phrase is found, anointed, is the term from which we get our English words, Messiah, Christ. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. In the immediate context, the prophecy applies to whom? David. King David is coming. The Lord's anointed is coming. Samuel has been given to Hannah. Samuel is going to be reared as a judge and as a priest and as a prophet. And it is Samuel who is going to anoint God's king, David, ushering in a a period of unprecedented blessing in the history of the nation of Israel. And God is going to enter into a covenant with David. And God is going to promise David that his seed... His son will rule on his throne forever. And so there is an immediate fulfillment in David, and yet the prophecy moves well beyond David. To whom? To the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That there is a kingdom coming. There is a kingdom which will be established upon God's anointed this king, this king of kings, and this Lord of lords. And all members of this kingdom will be saved. All enemies of this kingdom will be destroyed. And this kingdom will encompass the nations. Now way back when, I asked you to find what other passage in your Bible? Luke chapter 1. Why? Well, go there for a moment. Luke chapter 1. Because here we have another woman. Her name is Mary. And here we have an even more miraculous birth. A virgin birth. And conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Mary visits Elizabeth, and as, they, and as they meet, listen to what Mary utters under the inspiration of the Spirit of God in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And please, friends, re- exercise your brains here. Listen for the echoes from Hannah's song. How does Mary begin verse 46? My soul magnifies the Lord. Or as Hannah termed it, my heart exalts in the Lord. And my spirit, says Mary, rejoices in God my Savior. What did Hannah say? She exalts in God who is her salvation. And now Mary goes on and celebrates many of the same truths that Hannah has already celebrated. Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And now we have the mother of the Lord Jesus echoing what Hannah herself celebrates in anticipation of God's coming king. Now Mary picks up precisely the same themes as she anticipates the birth of her son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord's anointed, the one upon whom and in whom and through whom he will establish his kingdom. Now take all of that. I know it's difficult, but think, look down on it from the whole panoramic view of it all. And think of what God is doing through Hannah. Think of what God is doing through Samuel. Think of what God has accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. And now in your mind's eye, go all the way back to that song. Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me. When the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Hannah can say, my heart exalts in the Lord. Why? Because she knows the Lord who is her salvation. Mary can say, my my soul magnifies the Lord. Why? Because God is my Savior. Here are the truths, friends. If we're really going to learn Job's lesson, if we're going to learn from Anna, Hannah, if we're really going to be able to sing that song and mean it, blessed be the name of the Lord when he gives and when he takes away. We must comprehend the who the unrivaled, absolute sovereignty of God who rules all things. We must, we must come to grips with his incomprehensibility that we don't always know the answer to why he gives and he takes away. We must rest in this wonderful assurance that the God of such infinite greatness draws near to sustain and to help and to encourage us in the times of affliction. And we must have this unwavering conviction that all things are subservient to this great salvation. God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has an eternal plan to glorify himself. He has chosen to glorify himself in the eternal plan of redemption. The eternal plan of redemption is rooted in and upon the death of the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is the most wonderful truth, the most wonderful reality. When we trust in Christ, we have this absolute confidence and assurance 
that all that comes our way, the good times and the bad times, are subservient to this great salvation and God's good and glorious plan to magnify himself for all eternity. And so you're in a dark place. I'm in a dark place. To whom do I look? I look to God. And I look to the great salvation he has provided in Christ. And I rest in this wonderful assurance that all things, although I don't understand the nitty-gritty and the details, all things contribute to his plan of salvation and his magnifying of his great name. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would grant us understanding. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive. We pray that you would take your word now and bless it by your spirit. We pray that you would enlarge our view of you. May it be expansive. Might we think great thoughts of you, the one who is enthroned in majesty and glory. And we ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom and the hallowing of your name. In that name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen.